Hi, I'm Brent Olson, one of the directors of the Institute for Mountain Research at Westminster College. Our goal is to build a community of people who are curious about mountains and they care deeply about the people who live in them and the ways we experience them, know them, and care for them. Earlier this spring, when we moved classes online and went into lockdown, we were just at the height of our ski season here in Utah. The foundation myth of the Institute for Mountain Research involves a day at a local ski resort and, well, honestly, a few beers. So while it seems insignificant in the face of the pain, suffering, and chaos of the pandemic, the loss of spring skiing may have been one of the first things that Jeff and I mourned. To help fork through this grief, Jeff reached out to a few backcountry skiers in our Westminster community to get their stories over some Zoom conversations. If you can't get out into the backcountry, at least you can talk about it. Now, almost four months later, it's almost 100 degrees here in the Salt Lake Valley, and we're more concerned about wildfire in the mountains than avalanches. The pain, suffering, and chaos of the pandemic has only gotten worse, and it is deeply coupled with ongoing crises of racial inequality. I admit that it feels a bit odd to release a podcast about skiing into the world at this moment, but we're here to tell stories and we'll continue to do that. Before we hear from Jeff and the folks he talked to about skiing, I do want to mention that this fall we'll be partnering with Shomei Pu to share a series of stories from Asian refugees and immigrants. These episodes will weave together mountain folktales and the storytellers' experiences living in mountain environments in Asia and in the United States, and it's supported by a grant from the Whiting Foundation. I'm real excited about this project. Stay tuned for more details. First, though, in an effort to escape the heat and think of cooler days, here's Jeff with Russ, David, Sally, and Will. All right, we are recording. It's April 3rd, 2020, and I'm Jeff Nichols, and I'm at my home up in the Garrett, and I'm talking with Russ Costa, who's at his home in Salt Lake City. I'm outdoors here at my house, and I'm with Sally Miller, who's with us today from Maryland. This is Jeff Nichols talking with David Badley from our respective homes here in this bizarre uh, a mirror universe that we now inhabit. I'm talking with Will Deutschman, each of us from our respective homes here in the bizarre world that we, that we now inhabit. So let's talk a bit about skiing. How long have you been a backcountry skier? Ooh, I don't know. How good are you at math? Let's see. I started, I think my first season would have been um, 1973. Oh, wow. It was uh, when I was 12 years old. 73. So why, why backcountry skiing? Well, let's see. A variety of reasons. I mean, I, 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 I could answer why I like it or, or how I got into it initially. I think it was my scout troop was heading out, and we were supposed to stop by and pick up some rental skis. And instead, I just decided to talk my mom into buying me a pair. So having never tried it, um, I, sometimes... Sometimes you see yourself in something, even if you've never tried it before. And I, and I knew that I think, yeah, I think I knew that that was for me. And I, I knew I wanted something to do in the winter. I wanted something adventurous. Um, and at the same time, I was really turned off by the whole kind of industrial downhill skiing thing. Um, there was something about it that just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And something just seemed so beautifully poetic about putting on these kind of small, lightweight things on my feet and walking out into the woods in the winter. And so I, um, I started right out by getting skis and uh, just jumped right into it. And, and your mother bought that, did she? Yeah, yeah. She bought me the skis. And uh, that was in the very, very early days of this. It was back when uh, we skied on these long, skinny, cambered Norwegian things. 
Yeah, she got me the skis, and, the, and, and it was at the Foothill Village Sports Den, um, which was one of the early shops that was trying to promote the sport. And so they organized these free Saturday morning 8 a.m. ski tours where you could just show up and they'd take you along. And uh, that was kind of how I got started. So that was your, your whole scout trip went with, went with them? Uh, no, I think they did their own independent trip, but it was with them that I continued. Um, I, I continued on and kept, kept doing it. What kind of binding setup was it? <laughs> it was good old early primitive three pin bindings. Yeah, these, you know, long, you know, you, you measured the ski by reaching your arm up as high as you could and yeah. breaking your wrist and the tip should fit right in there. And they didn't even compare your weight to what you were going to be skiing on. You just went by length. And I was um, this gangly, lanky 13 year old or 12 year old kid who um, was nearly six foot four, but only weighed 120 pounds. <laughs> so my skis were terribly over cambered for me. But um, I'm, yeah, and then the bindings were just these light little three pin bindings in low top light leather boots that you clipped into. And um, you didn't even think of climbing skins. We just, you know, put on the right wax and herring boned up the hills. Wow. Backcountry skiing, not so long. I didn't start that until I moved out to Utah, which would be about four or five years ago. Okay. Yeah. What do you like about it? Oh, what's not to like about it? I love the solitude. That's not a word. <laughs> I love just being alone in the mountains, not having big crowds like we get at the resorts. And I like working, earning my turns, as some people would say working for the for the good snow you know it's like such good fresh powder up there and it's totally worth the climb for it and I also like a good workout you know so it's a really good workout to come up and then full reward on the way down which I like a lot <laughs> oh gosh uh let's see here I'm doing a quick mental calculation uh it's gotta be 30 years now hmm. something like that yeah, I mean, I started back when I was in high school, junior high school with my parents. You know, not really like hardcore backcountry skiing like we think about with, you know, plastic boots and AT bindings and that kind of stuff, but but kind of cross-country skiing, but not on groomed trails, just actually going out through the woods. Huh. Um, and then, you know, in grad school, I started just blazing my own trails and going off and exploring places where other people hadn't been and you know then sort of slowly evolved to where it is today where you know ski wherever whatever everything um so where did you where'd you uh, ski growing up where'd you learn to ski such a good question uh, i grew up in maryland so i grew up skiing at a really small resort called whitetail and i was really i was lucky enough to have a family um that skied together every president's day weekend we would rent a house on the mountain of wisp resort in pennsylvania and we'd spend president's day skiing president's day weekend skiing and it was like a really fun thing that we all did together and then a lot of my cousins stopped skiing but i stuck with it and i have an aunt and uncle who live in upstate new york and so I would visit them as much as I could. And they're actually both telemark skiers. So when I was 11, they got me into telemark skiing, which was, I think, a really important part of my skiing career because I was getting kind of bored. I'd already, I skied and learned how to snowboard 
and was getting pretty good at snowboarding too. And the hill that I grew up skiing on in Maryland is like, it has like seven runs. It's all sheer ice and like, there's not a lot happening there. But one winter I went up to my aunts and uncles in upstate New York and they put me on a pair of telemark skis which gave me a whole new challenge in the sport and gave me something to work towards, which was like a very vital part of my skiing career, I think. <laughs> nice. So where, where would you ski in upstate New York? We would ski at Gore Mountain. They had a condo sure. right at the base of the mountain, and it was so much fun. For us, it was such a treat. And my aunt and uncle, they would like do different lessons with us. Like I remember the first time they took us to ski in trees and they like gave us the rundown and like, this is how you do it. And gave us like different lessons on how to ski on different terrain, which was really cool too. It was super fun for my brother and I. Nice. Yeah. yeah I grew up uh, near there and I didn't oh, ski cool. or I didn't ski or a lot, but I've skied yeah. there a few times. Let's see, on my very first ski tour, I went up Mill F um, towards Scott's Pass. There's a mine that you pass on the way, and I think that mine was the destination for the day. Um, but I think that was my, my first tour and my second one. Um, I think we went in uh, to Lake Desolation, and I don't know, I don't remember how it went after that. Um, but um, yeah, those were, the, I do remember those first couple of tours really well, partially because I was just absolutely, absolutely terrible at it. I, I, you know, I couldn't ski at all. The only, the only way I could find any kind of control was by falling down. And it was um, really a couple of years before I actually learned how to control those things. And at one point during my teenage years, I actually even taught uh, cross-country skiing. And I never encountered a beginner that was worse than I was <laughs> when I was getting started. Yeah. So, you, so you thought of this as cross-country skiing? Yeah, that's kind of what they called it at the time. Um, the priorities kind of changed over the years, I think, with, with evolving gear. I'm not sure who originally brought it over to the U.S., but, but there was this, this thing that happened in kind of the early 70s where uh, people thought it would be nice to bring over the Norwegian skis, which were developed almost for a different kind of terrain, but they were long and skinny and, and, and made entirely of wood and, uh, and very lightweight boots and bindings. Um, and the idea was that you'd just go tromping off into the woods in the winter. And that was kind of what the motive was. I mean, this whole idea of making turns and, you know, getting, getting face shots and, you know, repeated runs and all of that. Um, that wasn't really the motive originally. The motive was just to find a way to go stomping back into the woods. Um, and it was much, much less crowded uh, than it is now. And it was a little bit faster and funner than snowshoeing. Uh, but that, but it was a similar kind of purpose. And then as the gear evolved, uh, that's, you know, when more people started getting into it and, and, uh, and the priorities began to change a little bit um, as to, you know, what people's motives were for doing it. It was nice to be able to control your gear, <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but getting the great run wasn't really why you were doing it. So when did you first start skinning up hills? Oh, let's see. Um, that wasn't probably until I'm guessing the very late seventies or early eighties, you know, um, gear had evolved a little bit by then skis had gotten a little bit softer and a little bit shorter and fiberglass had been introduced and there were actually edges on things. And I remember I was doing a lot of skiing in those days with Brooke Williams um, and he was using climbing skins and I wasn't, I was still waxing. And I remember one day we'd be skiing Tom's Hill and uh, we'd ski to the bottom 
and he'd start putting on his skins and I'd just start tromping up with my wax. So I'd get a good head start on him, but he'd usually catch me and pass me about halfway up the hill because he could climb a lot faster with the skins on. But by the time we, he'd get to the top, it would take him about as long to get the skins off as it would take me to get the rest of the way up there with my uh, herringbone. Um, and then we'd, then we'd ski the slope again. So we lived in Southern Oregon. So one of my favorite places was up in Prairie Lake National Park because every winter that essentially closes except a road up to the rim. And so you can ski right alongside the lake. You, there's all kinds of forested glades down off the side that you can tromp through. Um, and so that was a sort of a favorite little place to go. Nice. So you did, did you start off in just track skis? Pretty much, yeah. The old three-pin floppy boots and uh, fish scales, no metal edges, the whole nine yards. And then, you know, of course, as I got more adventurous and wanted to go more places, started upgrading the gear and, and figuring out uh, that, hey, you know, metal edges make things a little bit easier. And then fatter skis make things easier. And, you know, the, the progression we all go through until we have the big BP gear that goes everywhere. Yeah. So I'm still on Telemark, a Telemark setup. And actually, kind of funnily, everything I'm skiing on isn't made anymore. <laughs> I have Black Diamond. They're the O1 bindings, and they have their telemark bindings that have a tour mode, so you can fully lift your toes up. And they don't make those anymore. And I'm also skiing Black Diamond telemark boots, which they also don't make anymore. Black Diamond took it, like pulled out of the telemark game because I think, from what I understand, the AT game was just getting advanced enough that they're like, we can just do this and not make telemark gear anymore. So yeah, everything I'm skiing on is kind of expired. Um, but I am also on K2 uh, Got Back Skis, which I love very much. Cool. So have you tried AT gear? I don't think I have, actually. Hmm. Yeah. I haven't alpine skied in a very long time. I worked as a ski instructor at Brighton for a year, and... Uh, they tried to get me to teach on Alpine and I did like one lesson and was like, I know <laughs> I'm going to go back to telly because it's so much easier talking to kids when I could just like lunge and like be face to face with them. And it was just so nice. It felt so free, you know? <laughs> what is your favorite place to go? Um, I, I'm not sure if I have a favorite. Um, there are a lot of places all over the Wasatch that I really love, and and I've been I've been backcountry skiing the Wasatch again almost my entire life. Um, and so uh, it depends on the mood I'm in. It depends on the snow conditions. It depends on whether or not I'm skiing alone. Um, I, I make very different choices when I'm going out by myself and if I'm going out with uh, with others. Uh, um, but I you know I've 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 enjoyed you know, kind of bigger terrain. Um, you know, I've, I've really liked going places like Hogan Fork and Broad's Fork, uh, but I also really love the glades of Little Water. And um, I'm, yeah, yeah, there's just, I don't know. I, I don't think I could pick a favorite. Generally. Uh, in general, or because um, I was really talking about more obscure places that I've been going to avoid crowds during this pandemic, but you're just talking about a normal year here. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it really is, is seasonal. I, I, and I've kind of really thought about this a lot over the last, um, I don't know, 10 years or so of skiing in the backcountry, 20 years, I suppose, but more and more reflected on as patterns have developed in two decades of doing this. And there are places I go in December and January 
and then I move on to other places later in the spring. Um, some of that is probably a get board, but I think the larger driving factor is um, condition change, both avalanche-wise. Um, I can tend to will go into, uh, let's say, riskier terrain later in the season. That's not there's no one to one there, but the, the snowpack typically gets safer. Um, and the skiing gets better sometimes at higher elevation, exposed lines with um, exposed to um, um, wind and other things that typically lead to tricky avalanche conditions early season. That settles out um, in some of those high elevation places later. So to give away secrets, uh, some of the early places are, are kind of common, you know, grassy bottoms, uh, um, upper Big Cottonwood Canyon, um, particularly on the um, um, south, oh, sorry, on the north side of the road. Um, um, some of those trails up, like say, across the street from Solitude. Um, very popular locations, partly because they are safe. Um, and they also typically have less rock and more grass below them. And so early season, that's where I go. And then as the season progresses, um, you know, tend to hit, try to get higher, higher elevation above, um, say red pine, white pine lakes. Um, I think I talked already about Timpanogos um, and get into some of the, the upper uh, high alpine terrain that we have in Utah. I also travel a lot uh, to ski, particularly in the spring, um, for you know, spring ski mountaineering trips. And so there are a lot of places in Colorado I go to. Uh, love to get to the Pacific Northwest and ski volcanoes when I can in May and June. Works oftentimes with the academic calendar we have. So yeah, that's it. What are you missing out on this spring, travel-wise? Um, Colorado. I was supposed to, uh, right after our classes end, which last week April. Uh, I'm not teaching in May right now and, and won't be, but um, I was supposed to head maybe first week of May between our end of classes and graduation, which was scheduled for May 9. Uh, I was supposed to head to Colorado and ski, meet some friends and ski in, in um, both in the San Juan Mountains, um, north of Durango, um, Uray area. Um, and also kind of in the, in the Sawatch and in the, in the Bale area, there's some, uh, 14ers I wanted to ski and have skied and want to go back to, um, so that trip obviously got postponed probably till next season because the, 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 uh, it's a narrow window and I don't think, um, it'll be safe to travel, um, until the snow is gone really. Um, and those skiing's good. So that trip, I was hoping to go to Rainier, um, and ski, um, some routes actually on the south side of Rainier, which tends to be a little earlier. So in May, that trip is, we haven't canceled yet, but is looking extremely doubtful. Yeah. Maybe in June things clear up and we can get up to the Northwest and ski some other volcanoes. Some of those south facing lines um, have to be skied earlier because you have rock, big crevasses and rock fall hazard, but um, we'll see. We're just kind of playing it by ear and being flexible with the situation, but trying to get out and get out safely, um, see what happens. Ooh, my goodness. Uh, I, I think one of my favorite places, and maybe it's because it was, oh, sorry, there's a train going by. Um, I think it was the first place that I went, and so it has that kind of special place for me, but in Grizzly Gulch, up at the top of Little Cottonwood Canyon. Um, I can't even remember which run we did the first time, but... I just loved it. It was like a whole new world of skiing for me that I just couldn't comprehend. And, and I love going there now too, because there's so many different spots you can go and it's something, it's a place you can go 
and do something more difficult and have like a steeper train and more challenge, but you can also do something easier and take someone who's never gone before and teach them about it. And that's also a really good place to learn. And that's why I took my Abbey course as well. So yeah, I really like Grizzly Gulch. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, most of it's around the Cottonwoods just because it's so damn convenient to Salt Lake, but I do try and make myself go find new places every year. So, you know, a little bit up around Sun Valley, there's some good stuff there. Um, have poked around down in Southern Utah a couple of times. Yeah. Mo- mostly Cottonwoods just for the convenience though. Yeah. Who, who do you ski with? Uh, I, I'm an antisocial loner. <laughs> so... <laughs> I have skied probably 90 plus percent of the time by myself. Out of, out of preference or out of convenience, not having to organize or. Probably. uh, It's probably an equal mix of the two. There is a strong preference because being by yourself in the quiet of the backcountry is something pretty special. Convenience is certainly it just for, you know, before work or on a weekend, not having to deal with lining up partners and things like that. And then I, I don't have that many folks in my life who like to ski the same places I do. There are some folks I know who ski much more aggressively than I do. And so not my thing. And I know a fair number of people who do more sort of kick and glide track skiing, which is not my thing. And so trying to, to find people who like that sweet spot in between is a little difficult. Hmm. Do you worry about safety skiing alone? <laughs> yes, a lot. <laughs> I mostly address that through very, very careful terrain management. And so I'll ski most of the time, even when hazard's pretty high, um, but just make sure that I'm not on any slopes that are going to slide or underneath slopes that are going to slide. If I'm actually traveling in avalanche terrain, then I make damn sure I have a partner with me. Um, And then the non-avalanche risk mitigation, I always make sure somebody knows where I am so that I can call or text uh, when I get back and let them know I'm okay. But certainly there is uh, additional danger that, you know, if I fall and twist a knee or something like that, there's there's nobody there. There's nobody going to be there for a few hours. And I've, I've had close calls with that before, but I sort of knowingly sign up for that risk. So have you gotten in trouble? Uh, not extreme trouble, but for instance, what, we're in April now, last April, I was skiing in Oregon by myself up on one of the volcanoes and uh, hit a rock on the way down and twisted my knee pretty badly. Yeah. Uh, fortunately for me, it was about a half a mile from the car. And so I could limp myself out of there. But yeah, that could have been pretty bad if it had been further in because there was no cell coverage where I was at. Um, so it's it's a risk. It's a problem. But sure. so I was driving down the road. Sure. <laughs> You- That's a great question. I mean, something that's changed over the years, <laughs> too. It's a dynamic situation. Early um, in my 20s, when I was uh, skiing, let's say, more radical train, more regularly, um, I was looking at people who were willing to take those risks, but also do so safely and do so thinking about it. I mean, that's probably the hardest balance to find in a skiing partner, that kind of paired level of acceptable risk, um, both with avalanches and also something just terrain selection exposure where you want someone who is willing to take the risk you're willing. you don't want to be sort of um held back but you also don't want to be put in a situation you're uncomfortable with or you feel is too dangerous either because of your ability or because you're acceptable risk with 
Avalanche and other has, who paired with my level of acceptable risk at the time has been um, a constant process as, as my own level of acceptable risk changes and other trends in the, in the sport change. Lately, I've been, and this is partly just odd coincidence, I've found the perfect group of partners, I think, and those are, but females typically make, I think, better decisions and more conservative decisions than a lot of male partners. And, and um, as I've gotten older and my own level of risk has maybe gone down a little bit, I'm, I'm happy to have those discussions. Now, these are, I'm still typically skiing with partners who are getting into big terrain and, and taking risks, but they do so in a way that that's, I think, better. And there's a lot of interesting research into sort of gender dynamics and parties Sometimes a single female part, uh, person in the group increases the risk-taking uh, level of other group members um, that's been documented, not just in skiing. But, and the medical professional is always good too to, to help um, better uh, that sort of advanced medical training. But also for because of scheduling. Um, I have a relatively flexible schedule in the spring and, and sometimes I can ski on Tuesday afternoon, say, or Tuesday mornings. And it's nice to have people who, who aren't doing the Monday uh, through Friday nine to five thing. Though in this COVID time, maybe the medical professional is actually an increased risk, right? Because they're certainly exposed to, to things they see in, in their emergency rooms and, and other, in their practice. So the change over time, the change with your age, is that because you're you're getting smarter, you're thinking you've got more at stake as you get older, or is it a physical thing uh, or a combination? Probably a combination. Um, and probably also that I've witnessed things and been part of things I don't want to be part of again. Um, been close to a lot of accidents, including fatal ones. Uh, not in a party of mine necessarily, but responded to uh, fatal accidents in the nearby region. And, and you, I've also seen a lot in the mountains that has made me change the way I've done things or step back. Um, yeah, some of it is maybe more at stake, which is odd um, because you think you know, when you're young, you have your whole life in front of you and now I have less of that in front of me, whatever whatever that is. But but I do feel, yeah, there's more at stake and more responsibility there. Um, physical, not so much yet, although that, might, that certainly might happen. I think I'm probably a, I won't say a, a better skier, but in terms of technical terrain, I'm as strong as I ever was. Um, my legs tend to, I don't ski quite as fast anymore and <laughs> things like that. But as far as navigating uh, steep terrain, I'm, I don't think that's changed much. Um, yeah, and, and all of it, and all of it's sort of just led to a general, I won't say a general decrease in risk taking, but being smarter about where and when and picking spots. Um, and yeah, some of that might be increased knowledge and, and maybe I have gotten a little smarter, hopefully. Aside from safety concerns, if you didn't have to worry about that, obviously that's, that's kind of dumb. Um, do you like skiing alone? I do. And this is another sort of controversial thing that I'm, I've you know, been pretty vocal about and other in the community and other uh, things I've written and said at, at presentations and talks and, and other written pieces. I do ski alone and um, including in the backcountry. And um, that's a decision a lot of people, I'd say, frown upon or um, sort of have a base rule of don't. And some of that it makes sense. Avalanche rescue, if you are buried, requires a second party most of the time. 
you just can't dig yourself out. And so you have to adjust your risk accordingly. And certainly when I ski it alone, I'm skiing less risky terrain. I'm skiing places that are often, uh, that I, I know don't slide. I'm exposing myself to, um, it's never zero, but almost zero avalanche risk. There are still other risks of hitting a tree or blowing a knee and something like that, that you can encounter. And you just have to be prepared to either get yourself out with an injury, which I, uh, I have, um, or um, maybe making decisions to ski in places where you know you have cell service based on previous previous uh, trips to that region, to that zone. Nowadays, I am not skiing as long as much um, because that would maybe require, I don't have a partner to potentially carry out carry me out. If in the present situation, one person has to help carry me out, it's less than ideal, but it's only one person that's disposed as of bringing a whole rescue team of strangers in. But in general, I do ski alone and I like it. Sometimes it's a necessity, um, training for something and, and need to log so many miles or so many vertical and um, I can't find people to go with. Um, but I also think that it's a good headspace that, and a lot in the history of alpine climbing and, and mountaineering especially, have talked about sort of the um, mental benefits of, of spending that time completely alone in the mountains. Um, particularly as we live in a more interconnected world, there's always people around. Even in these times of social isolation, I've spent most of the day on various conference calls, we're always connected. And, and I think sort of being alone, whether it be on a bike ride um, or a ski tour, has benefits, although it certainly comes with increased risks. I think for the last decade, I've skied mostly alone. Um, and I'm not sure... I'm not sure if it's because I like it better or if it's just because I'm lazier when it comes to the logistics of, you know, getting it worked out with a group and or or um, just being able to like on my own schedule say, okay, it's time to go. I'm going to go now. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and again, with teaching, I mean, there was a, you know, a few years ago, I was uh, teaching a class on Tuesdays that ended at 1240. And if I was already packed and ready to go, um, I could get, you know, get out of class, get into my car, get up to the trailhead and actually stomp my way all the way to the top of Gobbler's Knob and then ski out Mill Creek into the dusk and hitchhike back around for the car. And I was getting, you know, that done every Tuesday night after class. Uh, and, and that's a tour that, that, that people often think of as being like a full day long thing. Um, but um, yeah, it's like, um, yeah, I don't know. Remind me of what your question was again. I'm just, I'm just wondering about the difference between skiing with people and skiing alone. Yeah, and I, I, I think... Um, Something like that is the kind of thing where if you're going alone, you can just kind of do it. And again, you don't have to deal with logistics. Um, there, there have been a lot of times where um, I've skied with people when I've been kind of out of shape and they've been in good shape and I felt bad about making them wait. Um, there have been times where it's been the other way around. Um, I mean, I, I, have, I have skied with a lot of people over the years, um, but I've also skied alone a lot. And I can't really say I prefer one or the other. I, I, I think each has its charm. No, I do not backcountry ski alone. I always go with a partner. Um, but yeah, it's nice to just be with that one person or a few people and have that experience with them. Yeah. Would you, if, it, if there weren't the safety concerns, would you like to ski alone? Ooh, that's an interesting question. I mean, I'm sure I would. I'm sure I would do it, but I think I'd prefer to have someone there because I feel like for me, part of the experience is getting that time with someone. And it's, it is nice to have the like decision-making to run by that by someone, but I guess 
if we're taking safety out of the question. But yeah, I don't know. I guess, I guess part of the experience that I like is getting that like smaller group or one-to-one time with another person. Yeah. Are you still skiing? I am. Um, certainly where I'm skiing has changed. Um, but, and, and I've been pretty vocal about this and, and rightfully people have criticized these decisions, suggesting that we should all, all stay home to minimize particularly exposure, um, for say search and rescue personnel, emergency medicine personnel, if there is an injury and we understand that. Um, but we've certainly started skiing in, um, safer locations and, also with my partners made agreements that we're not calling a rescue. We're not um, going to the emergency room. And so if someone blows a knee or, or breaks an arm or something that we're just going to walk out ourselves and I'm skiing with people I trust to follow through on that commitment. So we've adjusted. We don't carpool to the trailheads anymore, which is sort of routine. It's actually quite the opposite. Normally we sort of shame one another for driving their vehicles solo to the trailhead to avoid Canyon traffic canyon congestion and now we drive separately of course distance on the trails and have you know one or two people very small groups and make sure we don't have large groups and it's partly for mental health and uh partly because i'm I, I mean it is fairly local i'm not taking big trips and i sometimes think that that might be better even in terms of virus transmission than recreating in say liberty park or sugar house park here in salt lake which has far more people so but it's decisions i think about Okay. Are there many people up there? There are still a lot. Um, not as many as you would probably see on a Saturday or particularly on a weekend, Sunday or the equivalent day, not during time pandemic. So traffic has definitely decreased, but there are still people um, in particular, in particular areas, for example, the ski area parking lots. A lot of people were using the, the ski areas as a, uh, a familiar recreational place to go hike up. And then some of the popular trailheads, I try to avoid those places. So we've been going to kind of more obscure trailheads just to avoid that crowd. Um, but there are still a significant number of people getting out, not just on skis either. Um, certainly a lot of cyclists I've seen um, in the canyons and elsewhere and other recreational activities. So where are you skiing? This is a touchy subject. I can't give away my totally secret places, but um, um, there's some places in Big Cottonwood I really like that don't use the main, for those of you familiar with the, uh, the Big Cottonwood trailheads, the Spruces trailhead, for example, or, or Brighton parking lot um, or Butler Fork. Uh, some, so there are some other places that have less traffic at the trailhead and generally that's a good indication of where people are. And so if we see only one other vehicle or no other vehicles and, some, and most of the time we're able to find trailheads like this, particularly if we're skiing midweek, it's a little tricky on the weekends. So in Big Cottonwood, Little Cottonwood a little bit, and then also moving outside of the Tri-Canyon area, the, the Mill Creek, Big Cottonwood, Little Cottonwood, skiing a little more on, on Timpanogos and other places that typically see a little less traffic. Although that's a longer commute, and so it, it exposes you to risk um, from, a, um, a, from the automobile, the driving side. I've been thinking a lot about risk lately and, and sort of how to minimize my own risk in this environment or risk. So when you're actually doing the, um, you, you've talked a little bit about this already, but when you're, you're going downhill, what is it that appeals to you? Is it the physical thrill? Is it the beauty? What is it that, that you like? Oh, wow. That is such a great question. It depends on my mood. You know, sometimes 
I just love ripping it. Um, but I think more so, especially in the backcountry, um, I really love feeling the fluffiness and the floatiness of the powder. And uh, it just feels right. It feels like skiing at its like authentic core. And I, I just love that feeling of being in like, I love a good like wide, like meadowish kind of slope when I'm in the backcountry. I love trees, but I love just like a like an open slope where I can like go as wide or as narrow as I want to and just really like take advantage of not having to worry about other people and just like float down the hill. I love that feeling very much. Cool. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think it's one of those things that's just so deeply um, in my bones and has been for so long that I, I, I almost, I don't think I can articulate it. I, I um, you know, as soon as I started doing it, as terrible as I was, um, I, something about it just felt really right. Like I was doing something that was really, you know, part of who I am and part of something I love. Um, and I think a lot of that, of course, is kind of the tie to nature and, and, and kind of connecting with it. And, and, and I think because of the priorities of the time that I got started, um, it's still more about getting out into the, into the mountains in the winter than it is about, you know, I mean, if I, if I've got, you know, great skiing conditions and make some great runs and, you know, put in a nice line, I really, really love that. But I don't think that's a priority. I think it really is just about, you know, getting out into the mountains in the winter and, and, uh, you know, having a, having a great day of it. Yeah, I, I, I honestly can't exactly put my finger on a motive for it, but I know that it's probably one of the three or four things I love doing the best. I know it's why I've stayed in this town. It is something that I really, um, I really connect with. Cool. Yeah, I've, I've thought about this a lot as I've sort of aged in the sport, um, had time to reflect on why has that been one of these sort of consistent things. Um, I started, I was putting skis at a very young age. Um, I think started skiing around the age of five or so. And it's kind of followed me or been with me um, really since then um, in different amounts at different times. And some of it is really just getting into the mountains. I mean, the, I think it, that's also evolved over time too. At a younger age, it was sort of that rush of speed and other things. But I always appreciate that more, for example, in the mountains than, say, riding my bike or get, uh, driving or racing a car or other kinds of ways that in which you can get speed. And I, I think the mountains has been consistent and it's been a... Um, uh, an activity I enjoy uh, for a variety of reasons, but but the setting is important there. Uh, even when I think about riding my bike or, or running the little I run, I prefer to do it at elevation and with elevation change as opposed to on flat ground or um, you know, I prefer to do it up in the mountains to the east as opposed to down here in the valley, for example. So how hard was it for you to master tele? You know, it wasn't too difficult. And I was young. I was 11 when I was learning. And I learned on ice. And so I had it down pretty well, East Coast standards. And then I came out West. And learning how to telly in powder was completely different. It was, it felt so much more right than skiing on ice. Like, it just felt like what telemark seeing was supposed to be on. And it was finally kind of like all clicked. And I was like, oh, this is why people do this. This is awesome, you know? And there's definitely a lot of like 
catching edges and doing a lot of very ungraceful telly tumbles down the hill <laughs> and just like landing in fastfuls of powder. Um, but once I got the hang of it, it was pretty awesome. And now I like can hardly telly turn on ice when I come back home and ski. It's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. It's like, why would I ski on this ice when there could be real snow somewhere? <laughs> sure. And that, and that's an old cliche that if you're an Eastern skier and you learn on that kind of hard pack and ice, you mm-hmm. come out west and you're like, oh my God, this is, this is easy. Uh, yeah. Which isn't quite true. Uh, there's nothing easy about skiing deep powder. It's exhausting too. It like I really had to build up the stamina for it, especially like lunging through it. And also being like that much lower in the snow. Like I've been like belly button deep when I like lunge plowing through snow and it's just exhausting, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so did you have a group at Westminster that you went with? I did. I had a Bridger um was my touring buddy primarily. By senior year, we went on well he I was a senior and he was working in the environmental center we had a weekly dawn patrol tour every wednesday which was so great because before that i didn't have a lot of consistency i would just like go out whenever i knew someone going out and and i didn't do it as much as i would have liked but then my senior year bridger and i had a weekly dawn patrol and it was so so great we had such a good time and i learned so much from bridger and it was also just nice to catch up with Bridger as a friend since he had graduated and I didn't see him very much anymore. I don't know. I think at some level, it's the view, right? I mean, just gorgeous surroundings. And, and I've always preferred to sort of look at the valley and look at Salt Lake City from sort of the, the top of the Wasatch. And there's various places I love to have lunch where you can hang out on top of the peak as opposed to the reverse and looking up. I think if you look internationally right but globally at this typically mountains are less populated than valleys for a lot of reasons the weather's harsher harder to build more exposure to natural disaster and i think the lower population density um or lower or just the few general fewer amount of people is also appealing to me skiing's a little bit of an exception to this because certainly some of the most popular places we have in the mountains are ski towns but certainly one that's one of the things the backcountry skiing uh, option offers that you don't have to get to and i think one of the things that's attracted me to backcountry skiing more and more and got me away from the resort um has been that getting away from people getting away from infrastructure getting away from lifts getting away from that noise um, um and, and getting into places where you don't see a lot of other humans and a lot of, uh, and the impact of other humans. It's a way to, uh, uh, to move away from it. Early in my ski career, even when I first moved to Utah, I was probably skiing in resort 95% of the time, 99.5% of the time. And that has split now. And now I'm probably in the backcountry 90% of my ski days in any given year. Let, let me ask you this, and I, I, I don't know that I'm going to phrase this right or if you, you feel comfortable answering it. Um, do you think there are, are there prejudices or biases against women in backcountry skiing? Do you feel that at all? Ooh, interesting question. I personally don't feel it. And I think that's because I have only spent time with people in the backcountry who are very open-minded people. I mean, so like Bridger obviously is an amazing human and he did not have any of those prejudices. And besides that, I've spent a lot of time with other women 
And I think that's like part of my own preference too. I think even in kayaking, I, I really like doing those kinds of sports with women. I like doing them with men too, but I'd love if I can get a group of women out and doing something. But why, I think why you, that- Why do you like that better? I think I like it better because it's easier to speak up and I think that I feel heard a little bit more. And I, I, kind of, I, I don't like saying this and I, I haven't really figured out what it is, if it's like a me thing or general thing. But I also find that when I do things with men, I often feel like I'm like the worst at what I'm doing. And I think that's more of a, of a me thing than a general population thing. But yeah, like with backcountry skiing, I feel like I've skied with other like men who will just like go so fast touring up the hill. And I'm like, I, I don't want to go, like, I don't want to go that fast. You know, <laughs> like I've taken my time, taking it easy. And they're like sprinting up the hill and they're like up their way before I am, you know? And at some points it's like not really safe to be that spread apart and yeah and then with kayaking you know like a lot of like people who are a lot stronger than me men that are a lot stronger than me just like paddle through things that I would never never paddle through you know because <laughs> I know I wouldn't make it out of it so yeah and I guess also with women like I said I just I feel like I have more of a voice I feel more listened to sometimes um, but again I don't want to like I don't want to generalize that I think it also just depends on who you're spending time with like with Bridger I would have never felt like he wasn't listening to me or I didn't have a voice with him. So it all depends. It depends on who. Sure. Do you think is the tele community more welcoming of women or less competitive? I don't know. uh, Less macho than uh, Alpine skiing? Yes. I, I think that's one of the reasons why I love telemark skiing Um, because with alpine skiing, there's definitely like a proper form that you want. And I know I've like been riding up the chairlift with friends who've been like, oh, that person's like sitting way too far back in the seat or like, oh, this person's not doing this right. But with telemark skiing, um, you can, I don't want to say you can do whatever you want, um, but there's more freedom, like stylistically, there's like multiple ways that you could make your tele turns. And it also depends on the gear that you have to like different bindings encourage like different type of tele turns. And like, I've heard too, the difference between like East coast tele skiers and West coast tele skiers, like different kinds of lunges. So it's like, there's just a lot more ways to do it. And, and since not as many people tele ski, people don't really know how to judge you if you're doing it right or wrong. You know, <laughs> like yeah. from the chairlift, you just see like a tele skier and you're like, wow, that person looks like such a badass. And they just like zoom right by. And then, you know, the one tele skier that's on the hill is gone. And then you're like, okay, now I'm just looking at Alpine skiers and I'm going to continue judging them all. So that's one thing that I love about tele skiing for sure. It's like people can't really judge me. <laughs> oh, my primary learning period for that was back when I was in graduate school. I volunteered for a backcountry ski patrol and a mountain rescue group in Eugene, Oregon. And so for both of those, we had mandatory um, snow and avalanche safety trainings every single year. And so over the years that I was with them, um, sort of moved through both the National Ski Patrol curriculum and then also the Mountain Rescue Association curriculum. Um, you know, and starting at the, the, the bottom of learning the basics of avalanche safety. And then by the end of it, uh, I was doing instructing for both of the classes. 
since then, I have been bad and not been as consistent as I should be on doing my refreshers and, and things like that. Uh, so I, I really ought to go back out and do some of that. But uh, yeah, that was, that was most of it was through Ski Patrol and Mountain Rescue. So when did you first get any kind of avalanche training? I don't really know. Um, I, I think it's something that kind of always came along with it. There was already there was already an awareness. I don't think there was nearly as much of an understanding about avalanches in those days um, as there is now, but there was certainly studying going on. I mean, there was already a little book out, a little guidebook called the ABCs of Avalanche Safety. Um, that was one of the things that I that they would encourage you to buy as you bought a pair of skis in those days. Um, there wasn't any kind of avalanche forecast center, of course, and I don't think people understood avalanches nearly as well as they do now. But it was something that was always kind of on the radar. Um, there was more of a sense of you were just kind of hanging it out there and and and, and taking a chance. Um, but you could read terrain. You could, you know, um, kind of get a sensibility of what the snowpack was doing on any given day and make your route finding choices based on that. And so it's something that I think was always on the radar. Um, of course, there weren't transceivers then. Um, so what we do is we would drag these things called avalanche cords or these, you know, these kind of like, uh, you know, 20 meter long bright red cords that you would just tie a string around your waist. And, and they had little markings at certain intervals. And the idea was that if you got buried some of this red cord must be sticking up somewhere. And if somebody could find a little bit of the red cord, they could eventually find you. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and we always skied with shovels. I don't think I ever went skiing without shovels being, you know, on the list. Um, but, uh, but that was kind of how we managed it in those days. So have you ever been in trouble skiing? I haven't actually, I have, I play it very safe when I backcountry ski. Um, first of all, cause I only have an Avi level one. And so I really want to go up to a level two and understand more about the snow, but I'm not quite there yet. And then not living where I should be for that, but no, not really. I did have like, actually when I was skiing inbounds at solitude last year, um, I was skiing, I was kind of traversing and a mini little slab broke out under me and I like fell but it was very little, you know, it was just like, it wasn't like a full on avalanche, just a little slab that broke. And that was like the closest I'd come to that feeling. And I was like, Whoa, if that had been real, like that'd be really scary. And it was, cause it was scary enough. Just like, I remember I was like sitting on the ground and I just like looked at the slab that had broken beneath me and I was like, Whoa, that could have been bad. <laughs> I understand this now a little bit more. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. How often do you take the dog? It depends on the year. <laughs> I would like to take her more than I do, but obviously we have watershed restrictions. And then there's just issues of sort of terrain. Although my dog is pretty capable of navigating the mountains, there's only so much risk I'm exposed to the dog to. She's braver than I am. She'll do anything. And But sometimes I don't feel comfortable putting her, let's say, on a hard, firm snow above a cliff band. And uh, yeah, then sometimes for longer expeditions, it doesn't make sense to bring her when she'd have to spend extended time in the car, for example, um, during, during summer travel or late spring travel. But locally, I have spots that are outside the watershed. Um, they're very popular nowadays because people can bring their dogs um, outside of the uh, little big continent areas. Um, so I'd say we get out skiing a couple times a month. And I wish it could be more. So yeah. what, do you, what do you do in the summer? What do you do when you can't ski? 
Oh, uh, that's such a good question. I kayak a fair amount. And actually this winter, since I wasn't living in Salt Lake, I actually spend most of my winter kayaking down in Mexico. But yeah, I think kayaking and biking are kind of the things that I do when there's no snow to be skied. Do you, do you think of it that way that uh, I'm only biking because there's no snow? Yes. I think especially when I'm living in Utah, that's how I think about it. But when I'm living in Maryland, I have like a pretty big kayaking and river community here where like river sports are first priority. And so once I'm home, it kind of feels like kayaking is like the thing to be doing and not only because of the absence of snow. Um, But yeah, it depends. It depends on where I am. Very different lifestyles depending on where I'm living. So is there anything uh, similar? Is there overlap between kayaking and teleskiing? Yeah, I think there is a lot of similarity. I took a swift water rescue course um, in my senior year of college. And our instructor compared moving white water to a moving avalanche, which terrified me. <laughs> like, totally changed the way I thought about the river because I would never just be like, oh, look, there's an avalanche. Let me go ski on it. But that's what we're doing when we paddle in white water. Um, I do think there's similarities in like the thrill and the risk of it. Um, but for me personally, I feel much more comfortable on skis than I do in a boat. Like I, on skis, I feel like I could be at the top of a mountain and feel confident that I could get down it. It might not be the most graceful, but I feel like I could get down most anything in front of me. But in a kayak, I could be looking down at a rapid and be like, oh no, <laughs> this one, this is where I die, you know, <laughs> and like walk around it instead. Um, Cause the water is a really terrifying thing to me. So I'd say I'm more terrified when I'm kayaking, uh, but they do have similar uh, adrenaline junkie feels. <laughs> Number one, there is absolutely solitude on the Colorado because, you know, you're in there. We were in there for 21 days um, with effectively no hope of getting out once we pushed off from the bank the first day. But you're still surrounded by people because you've got your group of, you know, 10 to 20 people you're passing other groups of 10 to 20 people a couple times a day. Um, there are only a few places that you can pull off in camps. So you're always seeing other folks. Um, so while you can get away from folks there, it's, it's not for very long, um, just by the nature of the beast where, you know, backcountry skiing, if you want to ski off and be away from people all day or for a few days, you can pretty easily pull that off. So you're a big biker as so many skiers are. Biking, skiing, do you have a favorite or is it just you do one in the summer and you do one in the winter? Oh, yeah, that's, that's kind, of, kind of it is one in the summer and one in the winter. If for some reason I had to choose one and I couldn't do both, um, you know, questions like this are actually they're, they're kind of dumb questions. But, um, but, um, so what is it that appeals to you about skiing? Why? I don't know. I mean, there is there is kind of a summer and winter thing, and and one of the things 
um, that I guess is, uh, you know, probably I should say for full disclosure, um, is that I really love ski touring or backcountry skiing, uh, but I also really love track skiing. Um, you know, I love going out and doing, you know, classic skiing or skating, um, and I do quite a bit of that. Uh, and then for bicycling, um, you know, I like road biking and I like um, mountain biking. Um, and it seems like the biggest equivalent is like ski touring or backcountry skiing um, is um, is like the equivalent of mountain biking. And then track skiing is like the equivalent of road biking. In the wintertime, if I'm getting out for my daily, you know, hour plus workout, I head to the track and go track skiing. And in the summertime, if I'm getting my daily hour plus workout, I head out on a road bike. Um, and, you know, if I'm, if I'm, you know, having, if I have half a day or more to play with and I'm heading out for an adventure, um, then I go for a ski tour in the winter or I go for a mountain bike ride in the summer. So um, that's kind of how it shapes up. Nice. You're getting out now? Yeah. Um, I've already gotten in my road bike ride for the day. Um, I, um, I, I, um, yeah, I, I, I get out for either a road bike ride or a track ski um, or a tour, a mountain bike ride. Um, I'd like to say every day. I think it really works out to me even some more, but more between five and six days a week, but I do get out um, most days. So what is it that appeals to you about skiing? I don't know. I think at some level it's the view, right? I mean, just gorgeous surroundings. And, and I've always preferred to sort of look at the Valley and look at Salt Lake city from sort of the, the top of the Wasatch. And there's various places I love to have lunch where you can hang out on top of the peak. Uh, as opposed to the reverse and looking up? Yeah, um, for me, it's mostly the mental part of it that's important. Uh, I mean, physically, sure, it's good for me. It, you know, sort of uh, restores physical health and things like that. But mentally, is the important one for me that it's that chance to really unplug and just be with myself and nobody else. Um, Again, since I do most of my skiing solo, um, I'm my only company. And so I get to spend the time in my head and um, just sort of unplug from all the distractions of the days and uh, spend my time processing whatever's going on in my life, sort of think about reflecting on where I am and where I want to be. Um, and then also that just being in the moment, just just literally being there and doing nothing, you know, standing there in the skin track and staring at a chickadee on a tree for five minutes, right? Because there's nobody else there. There's nobody telling me to hurry up. Um, yeah. And so just being able to have that quiet mental time um, does enormous good for my overall mental well-being. Nice. I feel some kind of reality in it, some kind of truth in it. Um, one of the things that is always, I guess, kind of perplex me is people have, you know, said, oh, like, you know, going, going out for a ski tour, um, is kind of like, um, you know, escapist or kind of like getting out of your life for a little while or something like that. And I've found that almost the opposite is true. I feel like when I'm, you know, out, um, out in the wilderness, out moving under my own power, um, out dealing with those particular challenges. To me, that actually really feels the most like my life. That feels like, you know, the most like I'm living in a true way. Um, and, you know, this stuff of like sitting in the kitchen and, and, uh, and, and, you know, thinking about what I have to do to get ready for my classes this week. Um, to me, this almost feels more like the illusion, more like the, um, the part of myself that isn't as me as I am when I'm 
in the wilds. Um, and I think that's what I get out of it more than anything else. Um, I think that's why I've never been interested in resort skiing. Um, resort skiing to me feels like something else. It feels like an industrialized activity and it doesn't reward me in the way that skiing in the wilderness does. I didn't even know backcountry skiing was a thing. I thought resort skiing was it, you know? <laughs> and I remember coming out to Utah and my freshman year, being in a class with a bunch of upperclassmen and they were like, oh, I'm going out for a tour this weekend. And I was like, what? What does that even mean? They're like, well, we're going to skin up the mountain and then ski down. And I was like, what? That's a thing you can do? No way. And, and then like the first time I got to do it, I just remember being so just like starstruck and in like in all of this sport that I didn't even know existed. And yeah, it's a pretty special thing. And it's something that everyone should get to experience. Whenever I have friends from Maryland that would come out to Salt Lake, I would like borrow gear and get them out there, you know, even if it was just something small, just so they could see like, just so they could feel like the authenticity of it um, and the specialness. Oh, so many incredible things. I think like the first thing that comes to mind and maybe like one of the more cliche things to say is that it just gives me a lot of perspective being that high up and being able to look over Salt Lake City, for example, and just being like, oh, wow, everything down there is so small. All my problems that are down there are so tiny. It's going to be okay. And I think that was especially nice um, when I was in school and Bridger and I were doing our Dawn Patrol tours because, you know, school's overwhelming. But every Wednesday morning, you know, at five o'clock, we'd be hiking up the hill and just be able to look down and be like, oh, just feel like a slower pace, feel more relaxed and be like, I'm far away from this and it's all going to be okay. And then, yeah, I think just like getting the fresh air, getting away from people. And uh, I think also something that's really important to me is getting an appreciation for the environment and for being outdoors and just like for this beautiful world that we live in and like what I want to work to protect, you know, and just like taking the time to really appreciate nature and the beautiful mountains for what they are. It's yes. great. Words to live by. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of the Mountain Stories podcast. Thanks to David Badley, Sally Miller, Will Deutschman, and Russ Costa. We'll be continuing to push out new episodes of summer until the new series is ready to release early this fall. In the meantime, stay as safe and healthy as you can. Finally, thanks to Pixie and the Party Grass Boys for our theme song. As Naomi always said, they are awesome and you should check them out. Have a good week, everybody. Before I-